Shalom, shalom, and welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today um, for this important and fascinating program, The Measure of Stone, Midat Stone, Capitalism, Socialism, and Barbarism. Um, such an important topic for us to think about economics and economic justice and various dimensions of Jewish thought around such a complex issue. We're here with just a really um, great thinker and educator, Rabbi William Friedman, who's the senior educator of Base Lincoln Park, a home-based Jewish outreach and community building institution in Chicago. I actually had the uh, uh, pleasure of being there just a month or two ago to do a program with uh, Rabbi Sarah and Rabbi Will um, at that base. He's also a doctoral candidate in ancient Judaism at Harvard University, where his dissertation focuses on legal reasoning in ancient Near Eastern and Jewish law. He received rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Daniel Landis, former Rosh Hashiva of the Pardes Institute for Jewish Studies, and an MA in Talmud and Rabbinics from the Jewish Theological Seminary, who was a Kogod Research Center Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Um, Rabbi Will Friedman, we're thrilled to be here with you today and look forward to learning with you on the measure of stone, capitalism, socialism, and barbarism. Friends, we're not going to share screens, but if you did not receive a source sheet, um, uh, Reb Eddie is going to put it into the chat on the side, or you can email us and we can email to you whatever is best for you over there. And uh, Rev Will, thanks for being here. Thanks, Rev Shmuley. Um, I first want to thank Rev Shmuley and Rev Eddie for inviting me to teach. Um, it's always a pleasure to uh, to reconnect with old friends and old colleagues, um, especially when it hasn't been quite that long. Um, Rev Shmuley didn't mention that I bested him in our little debate, um, <laughs> but that's, that's okay. Um, so uh, I'm really, really honored to be here and to teach this Torah with you. Um, you know, it's sort of something of a cliche, but I do feel like I need to say upfront that we obviously planned this before October 7th um, and the world has changed since then. I think every Jewish professional and Torah teacher has been reevaluating the things that they thought were relevant from before then um, and asking whether they continue to be relevant. Um, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, to paraphrase Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, um, the question at hand is, is this Torah plausible to be taught while hostages are being held and families are in mourning? Um, but I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is um, that this is an extremely important topic because this topic actually goes fundamentally to what it takes to create a society of mutual care and concern and what destroys those societies. Um, and so uh, I hope and pray that, uh, that some of the learning today Will, uh, will contribute in some small way to the healing that we all need in the world. Um, okay, so where I wanna begin is with uh, a famous Mishnah. Famous, of course, means I know it. Um, in the famous tractate of Avot, that one actually is famous. Um, and uh, historically speaking, we're now in sort of the first and second century of the common era. Um, the rabbis are collecting, organizing, uh, and creating oral traditions. Um, and the unique thing about Masechet Avot, Tractate Avot, is that it doesn't deal with law. The other 62 tractates of the Mishnah deal with law, um, tractate of, largely. Tractate Avot um, deals with um, ethics, deals with uh, questions of the human condition um, and how to be in the world from an ethical rather than legal perspective. Um, and so that makes it unique. Um, and this Mishnah is even more unique in that it addresses sort of like a fundamental question of human society and human character. And that is to say different attitudes that human beings have towards property, their own property and the property of others. Uh, and so this Mishnah is set up um, to sort of to deal with four different permutations of people's attitudes. So if you look at source number one here, um, we see the setup. There are four essential human dispositions, midot ba'adam, and then it doesn't say towards property, but that becomes obvious from the content. And so here are, they are. Attitude one, mine is mine and yours is yours. So then we get an evaluation. This is an average disposition, midah benonit. Um, the word benoni um, is used sort of to mean right in the middle. Um, so, for example, in the Mishnah in Trumot, when it talks about different amounts that people give as a tithe to the priests, um, the most generous is called um, is called ayin tova, like a generous eye. That's generous. Then there's a stingy one, and then binoni is right in the middle, right? 
So Benoni is kind of like Parv, right? It's, it's right there in the middle. Um, there's nothing really to write home about one way or the other. It's not terrible. It's not great. Um, it's just average. It's just normal. Um, so it can mean average both in the sense, in like the moral and ethical sense, right? It's kind of like right in the middle, but it can also mean average um, possibly in the sense that like, that's what most people think, right? Um, so it's an attitude held by most people. So maybe an attitude um, not necessarily worthy of condemnation or praise um, and also a very common one. But what's interesting here is that instead of leaving it at that, right? And if it left it at that, we would have thought, okay, great. So this one's in the middle. There's one that's better and one that's worse, right? You should have had three attitudes and not four. Um, but the Mishnah doesn't do that. Um, the Mishnah does two interesting things. Thing number one is it gives an alternative view. Not, uh, this is not average, <laughs> or um, at least it may be common, but it's not average. Um, what it actually is, says the those who say, it's a disposition of stone, midat stone. Um, now, stone was not a great place. Um, stone was not a place that had a great reputation in either the Torah, um, the Hebrew Bible in general, or, or in subsequent tradition. Um, but the question is, what is the aspect of stone that's related to this attitude towards property of mine is mine and yours is yours, right? How does that attitude reflect sodomite attributes? And how perhaps does that attitude lead toward the development of sodomite attitudes? Um, so that's sort of our first interpretive question, okay? Interpretive question number one is, what do they mean when they say midat stone? Um, and once we unpack that, maybe we can understand a little bit better um, what the what the issues with shalish shalish shalach shalach mine is mine and yours is yours, which I should note, that's our attitude in the modern West, right? Thanks to the Enlightenment, thanks to John Locke, um, the idea, one of the main driving ideas of sort of the Western uh, notion of society is that it's there to protect property rights. John Locke writes this explicitly. Um, that people enter into society so that they don't have to personally guard their stuff. There's like a group of people who are guarding their stuff, which obviously great for the people who have stuff, not so great for the people who don't have stuff, right? <laughs> um, so um, this Mishnah either accepts that attitude, um, either accepts it factually, that's what most people think, or even accepts it morally, it's fine, it's right in the middle. And then there's another view that condemns it as the attribute of stone, and we need to figure out um, what that is and why that is. Um, then we have the second line of the Mishnah. Mine is yours and yours is mine. And this is called Am Haaretz, a commoner. Um, in the Bible, Am Haaretz is just a neutral term for like the people who live in a place, right? So when Avraham is um, negotiating for a plot of land to bury Sarah, um, he bows to Am Haaretz the Hittites, just the people who are living there, right? They doesn't say they were good, doesn't say they were bad, they were just locals. But the rabbis transform Am Haaretz into a term, into an epithet. Really, it's like a, a nasty term that they throw at people. And at best, it means ignoramus, um, someone who just is like unknowledgeable about the Torah. And at worst, it means someone who's actually a sinner, because Am Ame Haaretz, these commoners, were known as people who didn't separate tithes properly. Um, so they actually violated um, what was considered to be normative Jewish law, Jewish practice by the rabbis. Um, and uh, it's not just that they were dumb, but they were bad. Um, so that's the normal way Am Haaretz is used here. Um, and so the question is, is Am Haaretz being used here in that normal fashion, in that condemnatory fashion, um, or does it possibly mean something else? And the possibility that it means something else actually comes out of the last two. So the last two categories are, mine is yours and yours is mine. Um, sorry, that's, uh, yeah, you know, sorry, I'm, I said it wrong. I translated it right, but said it wrong. Mine is yours and yours is yours. This is somebody who's just a total, um, a total generous person who gives everything away and expects nothing in return. That is called a chassid, a pious person. Um, now that seems to be a level that would be very difficult to attain, certainly could not become a social norm, um, or if it did become a social norm, it would also lead very quickly to just shared property because everyone's giving everything away and not expecting anything in return. Um, so it seems like that's sort of being held up as like the sort of like some kind of like pious ideal, but not necessarily something that could be implemented by everybody. In which case you then have to ask, 
okay, so if that's like crazy righteous, right? What is, which of the first two is the better one, right? Is it the mine is mine, yours is yours, or is it the mine is yours, yours is mine, right? It sort of leaves us asking which of those two is um, sort of left. And also, especially according to the people who think that the first one is bad, right? Who think that the first one is me dot stone, right? Um, so that's category three. Category four is mine is mine and yours is mine. That's a wicked person, a rasha. That person is just ruthlessly acquisitive, right? They guard their own stuff and they're constantly trying to figure out how to make everybody else's stuff theirs, um, right? So that's that's kind of like the, you know, and it, it's not clear by the way, whether that means they do that in ways that are illegal, theft, right? Or, uh, or other nefarious means, right? Uh, unfair contracts, right? Nasty, uh, nasty, you know, they, they give loans and then collect them before the person can uh, repay the loan. So they take the person's stuff, right? Those are all examples from rabbinic literature of, of terrible things people do in order to get other people's property unscrupulously, um, even if it's technically legal. So it's not clear if this means the person is just like outright committing sins like theft or whether the person actually is um, engaging in legal um, but nefarious means of acquiring other people's stuff. But that sense of ruthless acquisitiveness is totally condemned as a Russia, totally condemned as um, absolutely wicked, unacceptable. So <clears throat> to go back and make clear, our attempt here is going to be to figure out what is the relationship of mine is mine and yours is yours to mine is yours and yours is mine, okay? Which we can um, very crudely but maybe helpfully call capitalism and socialism, right? A sort of Lockean libertarian capitalism that says the most important thing is to protect people's property rights. That's attitude one. Or a notion of free sharing, right? And I'm not uh, setting out here exactly which form of socialism we're talking about here, right? How does that sharing occur, right? But an attitude right? A, an attitude that could be described as socialist in its orientation, which is, um, which is um, fundamentally our stuff is shared, right? My stuff is yours, your stuff is mine. Um, and the question then is, number one, attitude number one, your, mine is mine and yours is yours. According to one view, capitalism is a-okay, it's just average, morally average and widespread. And according to others, it's sodomite, right? And that's where the barbarism comes in. So there are a couple of different tools we can use to try to figure out um, what the rabbis actually thought. Um, so one way is to look at the parallels, and here I'm looking at source number two, the parallels between this Mishnah and the next two Mishnahs in Avot, which are set up exactly in parallel. There's four categories, two, two things that are permutated in four ways. Um, and an evaluation, good or bad. So in the next Mishnah, Mishnah number 11, it talks about someone who is easy to anger, but also easy to, to be appeased, i.e. easy to, quick to forgive, right? Um, and then in the one after that, it talks about students, students who have a hard time learning versus students who have a hard time forgetting, right? So learning here, we're talking about memorization. We're in an oral culture, right? There's not, there's not books. The Mishnah is not a written text for many centuries. Um, it's all oral. And so the question is, right, how easy it is for someone to remember things versus how easy it is for them to forget it. So if we look at the parallels along the first axis, right, the first column, which are parallel to mine is mine and yours is yours. So in one case, the parallel is someone who is quick to anger, but quick to forgive, right? So if you're quick to anger, that's bad because there's a lot of anger in the world right? But you're also quick to forgive, right? You get over it very quickly. But the Mishnah says about that, the gain is offset by the loss, which makes it sound like on net, it's bad, right? It was good that you're quick to forgive, but that's offset by the fact that you're quick to anger, right? And on net, there's more anger in the world, right? Similarly, when you get to the Mishnah about learning, they talk about a student who is quick to learn, right? They remember things easily, but they're also quick to forget. They forget things quickly. And there too, that says the gain is offset by the loss, which also sounds pretty bad in terms of the outcome, because the whole point is to try to remember the things that you learned. So the fact that you can memorize them quickly, but doesn't matter, doesn't mean anything if you also forget them quickly, right? 
So it seems like by the parallels, the first category, whatever is good about the first category, right, which may be in our mission, we could say the fact that you respect other people's property rights, yours is yours, that is offset by the attitude of mine is mine, right? If we just look at the parallels between the Mishnayim. Similarly, in the second case, the parallels to mine is yours and yours is mine, right? This is what I'm calling the socialist attitude is someone who is hard to anger, but also difficult to forgive. So that they say the loss, the fact that you hold grudges, that's bad, but that's offset by the gain that it was hard to anger you in the first place. In other words, the net amount of anger in society is lower here, and that's better, right? It is better that there be less anger, even if that means there'll be more grudges. And similarly, in the case of the students who learn, the two categories are hard to learn, right? It takes you a long time to memorize the thing, but once you memorize it, it's hard to forget it. And there too, they say the loss is offset by the gain. And also there, the consequences are more Torah is being remembered for longer, right? So even though it was harder to get it in there, it stick around, right? And that was the point. The point was to get it to stick around. So it would seem just from this sort of like somewhat superficial, but I think instructive literary comparison between these Mishnayot, that actually the second category is preferred to the first. It is better to be harder to anger. It is better to remember things more, even if it was, even if you hold grudges, even if it was harder to learn the thing in the first place. And so too, you might say whatever is bad about the mine is yours, yours is mine, right? Maybe the idea that you're too free with other people's stuff, right? Yours is mine. The fact that you're generous, mine is yours, that offsets that as well, okay? So just in terms of the structural comparison, I think we already get a sense that there's at least a possibility that the second category, what I'm calling socialism, is considered better than the first category, even though it has detriments as well. Okay, before we head into an, an analysis of the commentaries on these two passages in the Mishnah to get a sense of how the medieval interpreters understood them, I want to just situate us um, sort of in the ancient context for a second. Um, what kind of economic societies were there or what kinds of attitudes existed among people in those societies? So we're talking about first and second century of the common era. Um, in the land of Israel, so, um, you know, under Roman rule. So we're talking about rabbis who have um, associations with Greek and Roman philosophers. We know that they had some associations with them. Um, and um, early Christianity, early emerging Christianity, especially once you get to the second century, right? Um, so I want to look at just two texts that I don't know if the rabbis knew them, <laughs> but I think they set the stage um, for some comparison. So the first is an amazing line right at the beginning of Plato's The Republic. Now, obviously, The Republic is centuries earlier. I'm not, talking, I'm not saying the play, that no, The Republic was, um, was, is contemporary with the rabbis, but I am saying that the thought of The Republic was digested through various uh, later Greek and Roman philosophers, and so may have just been floating in the ether. And at the beginning of the Republic, um, you know, which is set up as a dialogue between Socrates and a variety of characters, um, Socrates is talking to an old man. And he says to the old man, this is now source number three, you don't seem to love money too much. And those who haven't made their money, but rather inherited it, like you, are usually like you, right? So people who inherit money, they see money as sort of instrumental, but they don't love it that much. But those who have made it for themselves are twice as fond of it as those who haven't. Just as poets love their poems and fathers love their children, so those who have made their own money don't just care about it because it's useful as other people do, but because it's something they've made for themselves, right? That's a big shali shali kind of attitude, right? Mine is mine, right? I made this money. I love this money. And then Socrates has an amazing line. This makes them poor company for they haven't a good word to say about anything except money. <laughs> right, which is, an, which is just amazing, right? It's an amazing understanding that like, there are different people have different emotional relationships to money and the people who are most attached to their money actually aren't in Socrates's words, great company because that's the focus of their lives. So there might be an, uh, an acknowledgement or an understanding that Shali Shali is problematic because of the way in which it puts possessions at the center of one's disposition towards the world. Right. 
and makes them poor company. Now, Socrates probably meant poor philosophical company, right? Not a guy I want to have a beer with, right? But actually could be even, you know, but could be much worse than that, um, which is, right, that actually they are poor company in the sense that they are poor for society. That kind of attitude is destructive. The focus on possessions, not as a means to an end, but as an end unto itself could be very destructive. And that may, an echo of that may be in what the rabbis are saying about the problematics of Shalish okay? Second parallel cultural text is um, from the book of Acts. This is from the New Testament. Um, what they think is new, we call it the Christian Bible. Um, and, uh, and this is sort of post-Jesus. Jesus, obviously, famously in the Gospels, has negative things to say about wealthy people, right? The eye of the, the, the camel not getting through the eye of the needle, right? Things like that. There's a lot of stuff um, in, in words attributed to Jesus. Um, but in the sort of like the immediate following first set of disciples, what did they do? All who believed in Jesus were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. That's chapter two of Acts. Chapter four of Acts says a very similar thing, right? No one claimed private ownership of any possessions. Everything owned was held in common. There was not a needy person among them for as many as owed, owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of uh, what was sold to the group. They laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. So at least in this, um, you know, what the historical truth was and what the and what's you know being presented as an ideal here are obviously open debatable questions, but it definitely seems like at least there is a notion of commonality, of holding property in common amongst people who are fellow believers. Um, and um, you know, this this also is uh in Josephus's um in the first century Jewish uh uh Jewish person Jewish elite who wrote a history of the Jews for the Romans in Greek, right? So Josephus talks about the Essenes, which was a sect of Jews in the first century and earlier, and they also held everything in common. They were, they were a small sect and they did not have the concept of, they eliminated the concept of private property. So there was a notion whether, you know, put into practice by at least small groups of people of eliminating private property and holding all possessions in common and distributing them according to need, as opposed to, as we supposedly do it, according to merit, right? Or according to the reward for the person who puts their labor in, right? Those notions obviously um, could be and need to be problematized, but um, there at least was an alternative vision extant in the first centuries of the common era in which the rabbis were living of holding property in common and not focusing on it as um, my own private possession. Okay. So that's the milieu that we're in. So now I want to move on and go back to the interpretive, the Jewish interpretive tradition of those first two clauses in the Mishnah. Um, what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours being a sodomite disposition. Um, and then we'll look at commentaries on the second question of what is Amharis. So let's go to page two of the sources. Um, the first thing to know is that neither the neither the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, nor the rabbis think that the problem of stone was sexual. The whole idea that that the problem of stone was sodomy in the contemporary Western sense is an entirely, basically an entirely Christian notion. I'm not saying that there are no Jewish commentaries on the sexual aspects of the sin of Stone from the story in the book of, uh, in, in, in Shemot, in uh, Breshit, in Genesis, but that's not the focus, okay? So when God says to Abraham in, uh, in Genesis chapter 18, I hear the scream and the sin is great. I'm gonna go check it out. God doesn't know what the sin is. When the book of Ezekiel reflects back on what the sin of stone was, it's totally different than anything that uh, that anyone who uses the word sodomy in contemporary American discourse means. What does Ezekiel say? Only this, now we're on source number six. Huh. Only this was the sin of your sister stone. Arrogance. She and her daughters had plenty of bread and untroubled tranquility, yet she did not support the poor and the needy. They acted haughtily and they committed abomination before me, so I wiped them out when I saw. 
In other words, Ezekiel reflecting back on what the problem of stone was has nothing to do with sex. The abomination referred to here was the fact that they refused to share their largesse. They had a lot of stuff and there was internal peace and yet they refused to look outwards. They refused to look outwards beyond themselves. Um, and the rabbis expand on that in a dramatic way. So here I'm looking at source number seven, the Tosefta in Sota. This is another one of those tractates um, of, uh, of the Mishnah. The Tosefta is material external to the Mishnah, but intimately related to it. Um, and this tradition appears in a number of different early rabbinic texts. So in source number seven, we read, the inhabitants of stone only behaved arrogantly before the omnipresent due to the good that God had already granted them. The inhabitant, in other words, there was a lot of stuff in stone. They had a lot of stuff. The inhabitants of stone said, since enough food is produced from our land to feed us, and silver and gold are produced from our land, and fancy stones and gems are produced from our land, we have no need for people to come to us. They would only come to deplete us. Let us arise and expel the traveler from amongst us. The way the rabbis imagine the sin of stone, right, is that um, not only did they not want to share on sort of a geopolitical level, but actually they, they just closed their borders and refused to help anybody because they imagined themselves as um, the, the recipients of largesse that then did not need to be shared. To which God responds, the omnipresent said to them, because of the good which I granted you, you wish to expel the traveler from amongst you? I therefore will expel you from the world, right? In other words, the tragedy of stone is that they thought they built it. They thought, right, as the book of Deuteronomy warns the Israelites not to think, my strength, my power made all this good, made all this uh, wealth for me. To which God says, you're benefiting from the natural resources that I, God, gave you, right? In other words, you are fundamentally interconnected to the entirety of the world, and you think that that's yours to hoard and to keep for yourself and to expel people who are needy? That's the end of you, says God in the, in the, uh, in the Midrash of the rabbis. So the problem here seems to be the Shali Shali model, right? Shali, shali, shalach, shalach, right? The, the Sodomites said, yeah, whatever you get, you get. And as my, as my children's uh, can, you know, pre-K teachers would say, you don't get upset. But actually that attitude is terrible. It's actually a terrible attitude, right? In fact, right, you're supposed to share, which is something else they teach them in, uh, in pre-K. So the Sodomites refused to share that which they were granted because they thought it was theirs. But in fact, they erred because they didn't realize that what they had was not fundamentally theirs to begin with. Um, you know, this is an attitude that we find in the Hebrew Bible when, uh, when God is talking about the Jubilee, right? God gets to redistribute property in the land of Israel because the land of Israel is fundamentally God's and not the Israelites. The Israelites are just renters, right? Um, which shows you, by the way, both the vulnerability of renting right? Someone can take away your home, but also shows that, um, you know, in order to redress social inequality, at least generational social inequality, God takes it upon God's self to redistribute wealth periodically. Um, and God, God does that because the recognition is that God actually is the source of all the goodness, not anything that we do. Okay. And the Sodomites made that fundamental error. Um, now, reflecting on that, on that story, um, the Maharal in um, 16th century Poland um, says, uh, you know, he's, he sort of plays it out. What's the, what, what actually happened here? The inhabitants of Stone only exhibited arrogance. I'm on source number eight. The explanation is this. If a person has too many goods, that causes, that causes them to turn away from God. When a person does not have a lot, they do not break the yoke of heaven and they have a submissive heart. But when someone has a lot, the yoke of heaven does not lay upon them at all. Too much wealth, too much power. You don't think anyone can control you except yourself. And they break the yoke with this very thing, with their money, insofar as they do not wish to lose any of their money, which such a person considers as dear as their own life. Echoes of Plato, right? <laughs> Maharal did not read Plato, as far as I'm aware, but the, the fundamental insight is there. Rich people didn't change for 1,500 years. Therefore, the inhabitants of stone got to the point where they did not want to accept travelers 
And this is also the reason they lack all integrity, not only regarding their money, but in all matters, they lacked integrity. That's a reference to a series of stories the rabbis tell about what Stone was like, which again, had nothing to do with sex, but had everything to do with exploitation of the poor, um, exploitation of the weak, using law to oppress people. Um, and it all, the root of all of that evil was money. Money, according to the Maharal, is the root of all evil. Um, I don't know if anyone has researched the origin of that phrase, but it's here, <laughs> right? Uh, money was the root of all evil in Stone, and it caused the corruption of every other aspect of their society. And it all flowed from the attitude of let's protect individual property rights very strongly. Um, and so now the question is, how do we relate that to the other categories, right? Um, so there are two commentaries I want to look at here. Um, one from uh, early 15th century Spain, um, Rabbi Mitzitiahu Hayitatari, source number nine, um, where he says, what, what, what's so bad about it, right? Mine is mine, yours is yours, called the average disposition, since one is not yearning to receive from the other. It seems he's neither jealous nor covetous, right? In other words, maybe it's fine. Maybe it's morally neutral. That's, that's why mine is mine and yours is yours is morally neutral, because you're not trying, you're not, you're not ruthlessly acquisitive, uh, acquisitive, like the fourth category, right? The your mine is mine and yours is mine people, right? They're just like libertarians. But there are those who say regarding this, that this is a sodomite disposition because it is not nice to say yours is yours to the poor. In other words, structural inequality is evil, right? Just because I have, you know, I have what I have and you have what you have sounds great on paper, but actually in real life is horrible because some people have a lot and some people have a little. And the goal isn't to protect the thing you have. The goal is to make sure that people aren't suffering. Thus, we are told that anyone who does not have mercy on the poor is uncivilized, since a person's nature ought to arouse him to be merciful to his own kind. Furthermore, the world is constantly changing, and perhaps it will change for him, and he will need others to show mercy to him. That's sort of like the pragmatic answer to the rich person, right? Which is say, you might be poor someday, so at least pay it forward. A person, no matter how wealthy or wise, needs to be in community with others. And it is impossible to calculate precisely what one receives and what one gives. Just as a sodomite disposition unravels community and cannot last, so this disposition. This, I think, is the most important piece, which is to say, fundamentally, the selfishness and the self-focus reflected in the mine is mine, yours is yours attitude is just simply destructive of any ability to live in community with each other. Because ultimately, people will need help. And right now, the shalishali rich person may say, I don't need help. Well, that's, a, that's being a sodomite, as Ezekiel pointed out. Because the whole point of having stuff is to help others. And if you're not going to help others, then that's the end of any ability to have reciprocity. Society can't survive in the absence of reciprocity. This is like the anti-Lockean position, right? Locke thought society was there to protect property. This view is that society is there to help you share your property. It's a fundamentally different attitude than the entirety of the Western Enlightenment. Um, and this comes to the fore also in a later source, a source that is actually, um, you know, sort of like early Enlightenment, um, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Naftali Herzvesely, um, who uh, had some connections with Mendelssohn, um, but wrote a traditional commentary to a vote. Um, and he says as follows, uh, one who says my, and then we're in source number 10, one who says mine is mine and yours is yours. In other words, according to that person's traits and inclinations, they hold that everyone receives their portion from heaven, whether small or large, and no one has to distribute what is theirs to help their fellow. This is just a religious way of saying the stuff that people say now of meritocracy, right? This is just religious meritocracy. God gives people what they deserve, and therefore I have no um, right to interfere. Um, so now I'm skipping down um, to the top of the next page, which is the page four, the continuation of this source, where he says, no, 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 no. Even, some say this is the disposition of stone. So even though one has fulfilled and you shall love your fellow as yourself, meaning like yourself, in other words, you treat others the way you want to be treated. I want to keep my stuff. And I say, you get to keep your stuff, right? So that sounds like right? But um, this disposition tends towards wickedness because the mind cannot tolerate thinking this way, which would eliminate human civilization and all business dealings and love and fraternity would be demolished. 
because everyone would know that their fellow will not stand with them at a time of distress. And that is similar to the disposition of the Sodomites who decided to eliminate travelers from their land, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, the point here is that, um, the point here is, is that the, the selfishness, how, so he just, he sharpens it. How does the selfishness destroy human civilization? It destroys human civilization insofar as it creates a society of atomized individuals who don't feel that they can ever rely on anybody else in times of distress. And that's the end of society. Because society is about, can I get help from others in a, um, seri- in a set of interlocking bonds of mutual interdependence? Once you've destroyed that by saying, my stuff is mine and your stuff is yours, and I have no obligations towards you, then that's the end of any ability to see society as a place where one can turn for help. Um, so that's stone, <laughs> right? That is, according to these texts, stone. Um, textually, the very interesting thing he says at the end is that the, the, there's no contradiction actually between calling that an average disposition and calling that a sodomite disposition. Um, because the point is on the one hand, um, that's like normal, right? Statistically normal, but morally horrid, right? So when they say it was a midah benoni, when they said it was an average disposition, just meant lots of people think that, but actually it's really bad. Um, so that, you know, and, and I think all of those uh, views are in line with the textual analysis we did at the beginning, looking at the parallels in source number two, which was to say, this first category and all the other Mishnayot seems like even though it has something good about it, the bad outweighs the good, right? The gain is offset by the loss. And that, I think, is the direction that all of these commentaries go. So now I want to turn to address the second question, which is, okay, great. So if what's mine is mine and yours is yours is bad destructive of society, right? Impossible to create bonds of mutuality and interdependence. Well, then why does it call the person who says, um, who calls for socialism, mine is yours, yours is mine, and I'm Haaretz, which normally is a bad thing in, the, in rabbinic literature. And so here, the commentaries are forced to reinterpret Am Haaretz, not as an ignoramus, but to go back in a sense to the original biblical meaning to mean somebody who's fundamentally concerned with society. Amaaret, an inhabitant of the land in the most literal sense, somebody who wants there to be society. <laughs> and so we see this in source number 11, um, and this is a source that goes back to, to the 13th century, um, where he says, and actually it's interesting here, he reads the text halakhically. He says, we have to decide which of these dispositions is the best. Um, and he says, so sorry, the first he says that we, we go according to the person who says that capitalism is sodomite. <laughs> Right, that's his first move. And then he says, in the middle here, and therefore the person who possesses this disposition is a commoner, the one who says, um, uh, sorry, I'm gonna go back up. The one who says mine is yours and yours is mine, he benefits from others and grants benefit to others. This is an honorable trait and the way of the world for this sustains the political community in which a person is immersed. And therefore the person who possesses this disposition is a commoner, an amaaretz, not as an insult, for it is known there is no derech eret, civilized behavior, without, there's no Torah without civilized behavior. This person is therefore honorable, but they haven't attained the perfection appropriate for a descendant of Abraham, our father, who was totally selfless and gave everything away. So he says, look, the only reason they don't call this person pious is because he's not like, uh, you know, an Abraham level ascetic. But short of being an Abraham level ascetic, which is impossible <laughs> for most people in society, right? Being an Amaretz in this case is pretty good. That's what you want. You want to be part of a society of mutual interdependence. Um, And and this comes out, I think, more precisely in source number 12, where he says, um, the second disposition, one who says mine is yours and yours is mine is a person of the land, refers to the gathering of people and their settling as in days of yore. The phrase mine is yours means that one doesn't want to calculate precisely with others, like saying, do with my stuff as you would do with your stuff. And at a later time, if I need something, don't be so exacting with me to only give exactly what you took from me. This establishes a nice society and is the root of engaging in acts of loving kindness, which is one of the pillars of the world. People not calculating precisely how much they benefit each other. In other words, the point of mine is yours and yours is mine is not like full socialism, right? In some sense, but actually is just a way of saying we are all in this together. We're all in this life together. 
we're all in this um, world together. And therefore, what does it mean to be together? It means that I trust you. It means that I think that I can give you something. And when I need something, I'll get it back. I'll get back what I need. Because what's being concerned, what, what the concern is here is not the stuff, but the needs fulfilled by the stuff. So if you have a need and I have the stuff, take the stuff. And then when I have a need and you have the stuff, you'll give me the stuff. And we care about each other. That's the point. The point is that we care about each other enough not to be holding accounts. Um, and so that I think this comes, um, this comes, uh, the, the, so that, that's the positive interpretation of the Amharis. Now, I can't deny that there's a long tradition of interpreting Amharis as it is in every other context as bad. And the way that the commentaries normally frame that is as, well, they're just dumb, either because they get confused about who owns what, or they're dumb because they don't understand human nature. Um, and that's brought, I think, to a very, uh, in a very like sort of sharp way in a modern commentary by the contemporary Israeli rabbi Tamara Applebaum, um, who wrote um, with Rabbi Gordon Tucker a commentary on Pirkei Avot. Um, and this is source number 13. So this is what she says. She says, to deny the concept of ownership altogether is derided as the approach of an ignoramus. The sage's critique here is astute. We cannot allow ourselves to be naive about the question of ownership in the world. The simpleton dreams of a world without private property at all, but since such an outlook is generally at odds with human nature, this approach effectively signals the abandonment of humanity because by effacing the line between one person's property and another's, it suggests that people can avoid responsibility for their own property entirely. Here she's drawing on, uh, I think, the concept of uh, the tragedy of the commons. Once something becomes everybody's responsibility, no one takes responsibility for it. Um, I'm not convinced that's the best reading of the text, but that's at least what she's, she's claiming. In fact, people must assume responsibility for what they own. So maybe that's, you know, sort of the most sophisticated view. There are, you know, fascinatingly, a number of 20th century commentaries, um, particularly in um, either victims of totalitarian communism or Western opponents of totalitarian communism, who obviously want to read this line as particularly condemnatory, right? What's yours is mine and what's mine is yours is, you know, communist and therefore evil. Um, but as we saw, that's only one um, one, one traditional way to, to view this. The other traditional way to view this is that actually this is the, this is the fundamental of society. The fundamental of society is an attitude of sharing and shared property. Um, and I want to suggest sort of in, in, uh, in advance response to people who might claim, okay, but communism failed, right? Socialism failed. Um, that actually the, the rabbinic attitude is a little bit more complex than that. And I think it comes to fruition in an amazing Tosefta, um, which basically, in my view, expresses the rabbinic idea of the social contract. Um, and it expresses that view in the context of thinking about the laws of um, caring for and returning lost property, right? So the Torah says that um, you have to return the lost property in Exodus of your enemy, um, in Deuteronomy uh, of your brother. So it's interesting how those two texts relate to each other. Um, but you have to take care of your neighbor's lost property. And the rabbis extend that beyond just lost property in the sense of, I see someone's wallet on the ground. So now in source 14, they say, if someone saw water continuously flowing towards someone else's property, threatening to damage it, they are obligated to obstruct the water, right? In other words, I can't walk by a broken uh, hydrant, which I see is soaking someone's car and just walk away and say, sucks to be them. Right, I can't do that. I have to step in and somehow divert the water. And then they say, this is the general rule. Anything which might result in monetary loss incurs the obligation of returning a lost object. So on the one hand, I have an intense responsibility towards other people's property. I have to protect it. You know, they're not around. Nobody knows, right? The Torah says, you can't turn your eyes away, which is a, a moral commandment, right? Not, not a it's not a legally enforceable commandment, um, right? But I have to pay attention to what's going on around me and what's happening to other people's stuff. And then the Tosefta gives the corollary. If one's fellow is lost, one must take them by the hand and may even cut through the branches of fields and vineyards, meaning other people's stuff, the other people's property, even if doing so causes damage, 
with them until they reach the city or the main road. And just as this applies to one's fellow, it applies to oneself. One who is themselves lost may cut through fields and vineyards, even if doing so causes damage, until he arrives at the road or the city. For on this condition, Joshua bequeathed Israel the land. Um, what do I think the rabbis are doing here? I think the rabbis are setting up the terms of the Jewish social contract. The Jewish social contract looks like this. I will protect your property from damage. Therefore, I have the right to use your property and even damage it in minor ways when I need to. And that's the bond of mutuality that was the basis of Joshua giving the land of Israel to the Israelites. In other words, the Jewish social contract is, I promise to help you and you promise to help me. And our property is a function, it's usable only insofar as I'm willing to allow other people access to it when they need help. And I will be willing to do that because I know you're looking out for me. So it's a form of shali, shalach, shalach, shali, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Not in the sense that we efface ownership necessarily, but rather in the sense that we view our property as fundamentally accessible to others. And the corollary of that, what enables it, is that we feel, we know that they're looking out for me at other times. And that's, that's, what, that, that's the way it works. It works because there's enough trust between people. Um, and I'll conclude by looking at just two, um, two sources that kind of give voice to that. So one is, um, source number 15 is a, a book on the history of debt by um, the late anthropologist David Graeber of Blessed Memory, um, a, a prominent, uh, a prominent um, uh, anarchist uh, philosopher and anthropologist who died very young. Um, and he, in this book on debt, he considers the question of debt and he says, debt is not actually natural. Debt is what happens when people stop trusting each other. So he says there are no societies based on barter, right? Barter in the sense that like, you know, I give you this, I note the value of it, and then I'll give you something of equivalent value. There are no societies based on barter. Such a society could only be one in which everybody was an inch away from everybody else's throat. If one cares enough about someone, a neighbor or a friend, to wish to deal with her fairly and honestly, one will inevitably also care about her enough to take her individual needs, desires, and situation into account, right? In other words, the, the, model, the model that we saw earlier, right, in the rabbinic sources of um, we don't keep accounts. That's the point. The point of society is we don't keep accounts. We trust that we're each looking out for each other. And then um, Graeber notes from uh, uh, studies of um, hunter-gatherer societies um, that in egalitarian hunting societies, being truly human meant refusing to make such calculations, refusing to measure or remember who had given what to whom, for the precise reason that doing so would inevitably create a world where we reduce each other to slaves or dogs through debt. I think there's an echo here of stone, right? In the sense that um, it's the precise accounting um, that is what led to the corruption and destruction of their society. The unwillingness to help led to laws, according to the rabbis, that um, you couldn't help poor people. Anyone who helped poor people was, was put to death, right? because that's where that the shali, shali, shalach, shalach taken all the way leads you to. And the very last source I want to look at is an amazing text um, from a, uh, a prominent uh, rabbi and Jewish scholar in the mid 20th century, Hans Joseph Heinemann. Um, and in 1944, probably not a coincidental year, he wrote a pamphlet published in English in England for the um, bur uh, burgeoning religious Zionist movement, um, where he, he, he considers the question of what's the proper economic uh, arrangement of society. And this is what he says. The Torah established an order of society with no class distinctions, at least no permanent ones. The driving force of economic activity must not be acquisition of wealth at the cost of others for the purpose of dominating others, the rights of property are very limited, and he who possesses wealth must put it at the disposal of others without expecting any profit by doing so. It refers to a whole complex of laws about lending without interest and forgiving loans every seven years, things like that. Um, 
And then he says, um, I am concerned with socialism as a system of social and economic organization based on common instead of private ownership of the means of production. And this I sincerely believe to be the only sensible and workable social, um, uh, I'm not sure where, where my typo is, but so society for our age, as well as the only one under which the social ideals of the Torah can be translated into reality today. So I'm not, I, I don't necessarily think we have to be as sanguine <laughs> as he was about the potential of socialism to understand that there's a Shali Shali model that has gone off the rails and veered into sodomy in a society that criminalizes in a number of states in America, giving food to the poor, <laughs> giving food to the homeless. I wrote an article about this on Jew School. You can look it up back in 2014, I think. Um, we're, we're there. We're, we're Midat Stone. That's where we live. And so the question is, what are going to be the ways in which we can cure the broken bonds of society and get back to a place of interdependence, mutuality, and trust that could let us create a different kind of society? And I think that it's going to require a lot of creativity, a lot of creative thought, a lot of taking the lessons of the 20th century and reapplying them in new ways. Um, and the Torah can help us by goading us, by reminding us, by showing us here. Here were some societies that tried to do what you are trying to do, shali, shali, shalach, shalach, and were utterly destroyed. So why don't we try something else? That's my hope. Thank you. Wow. Wow. That is a masterclass. Um, well, we have just a few minutes if anybody wants to jump in with a question here. Um, thank you so much. Eddie or uh, Red Mike, Jeff, anyone else? Or from the live stream, if you're in the live stream, Eddie's monitoring that too. Well, with that, we thank you so much for this uh, incredible learning session and um, are grateful to be able to learn with you and wishing everyone blessings for safety and peace. I mean, thank you, Rav Have a beautiful day. Thank you so much. Happy to share my email. <laughs>